The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. If I were to die tomorrow, what would the world need me to do today? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. This week, we're sharing my live conversation with April Rennie at LinkedIn's Talent Connect. April is a futurist. I'll let her tell you what that means a little bit later. But she focuses largely on how we handle uncertainty and a life of flux. Her goal is to help each of us get better with living with the unknowns. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not great with uncertainty. In fact, I am often challenged with the anxiety that comes when I feel like I'm not in control of a situation. I've listened to a lot of conversations on uncertainty, and I've talked about it a lot on this show. But this is not your typical clinical uncertainty podcast episode. This is April sharing how her own uncertainty in her personal life has informed her work. She lost both of her parents tragically in a car accident at age 20. She's traveled the world and been in some of the coolest and scariest situations, like being held at gunpoint and hitchhiking with strangers. And she's brought her studies and experience together to help us all go through every day with more ease, despite the uncertainty that will no doubt come our way. Here's April on growing from tragedy, leaning into uncertainty, and choosing optimism despite it all. Thank you all so much for joining us at uh, Talent Connect and in the Conversation Studio. I'm Leah Smart. I host our podcast, Everyday Better, which is all about how we can live with more intention and clarity every single day. I talk to amazing thinkers, authors, just like April, who's joining me today, April Rennie. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Delighted to be here with you all. Just a pleasure. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, LinkedIn. This is a wonderful gathering and space to deepen our conversation. April is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. She was ranked one of the top 50 leading female futurists in the world by Forbes. She's a change navigator. She helps individuals and organizations rethink and reshape their relationship to change, to uncertainty, and to a world that's in flux. And your book called Flux was just named by Thinkers 50 as a breakthrough idea. So congratulations in the last few weeks. Love that. So, April, I always ask people when I start conversations what the intention is behind their work because I want people to feel really connected to you and your story. So can you tell me a little bit about the intention behind your work? What is my intention? It is to help people be able to show up a bit more fully, a bit more calmly, with a bit more presence to just the world around us, which is in. But if we go a little deeper, and this will, I think, segue into some of the other things we'll be talking about— as I look at my life and my upbringing, what I've been through and experienced, one of the questions that has defined what I do for the last 25 plus years, and I don't want this to sound morbid, but the question is, if I were to die tomorrow, what would the world need me to do today? And that's very specific, the world as a whole, humanity. Not what would a boss need me to do, 
not what would social media need me to do, not what would my ego want me to do, but the world. And so I've always, since I was a little kid, been driven by service and really that sense of how can I leave the world a little bit better for others and finding my own fulfillment in that process. But the why always comes back to that question. If I were to die tomorrow, what would the world need me to do today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The world. And, and that means everybody. That means, and I don't want to sound, you know, like it's some sort of sweeping, grandiose statement, but I mean humanity. And really looking at all humans as having equal dignity, equal worth on this planet. That changes how you answer that question when you're coming at it from that point of view. Well, and I think about it as it may not be grandiose for everyone. It's probably not grandiose for most of us, but it's how do we change our own corner of the world or how do we contribute to our own corner of the world? It's interesting because you're labeled a futurist, which every time I see futurists, I get excited. And then I'm like, wait, I have Googled this and looked it up so many times. What is a futurist? (laughs) (laughs) And it's a great question and one that... 10, 15, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have had futurists. I also have to give the caveat, like I did not set out to be a futurist. Other people started calling me a futurist before I was like, oh, this fits. Yes, this is totally what I'm doing. I am studying and scanning macro forces and macro trends on multiple levels that are affecting the world we live in, affecting your company, affecting your team, but that by and large, 99.9% of people in organizations, they're not looking at. And they're not doing that because they're focused on the here and now. I have this year's KPIs, this quarter's returns, this week's to-do list. I am focused on the here and now. And I know that there are some things on the horizon that we should be thinking about and looking at, but I don't have time for that today. I got to get through this week. And that's totally legit. I have lots of respect for like the here and now is plenty to deal with. But I'm doing that that scanning on the horizon. And in one sentence, I'll often say, I help people and organizations better understand what is on the horizon and how they fit into it. And so this can be both major forces related to your customers, related to your business model, related to things that are happening in the world that could have positively or negatively a massive impact on what you do and how you do it. And so it's scanning not just for big risks, but also for untapped opportunities. The future of work is a futurist-related topic that I think many people now understand. Future of work, future of learning, but future of longevity, future of cities, future of sustainability, circular economy, future of social safety nets, fill in the blank. And you start realizing, and then what you're doing, not just looking at one, but how are these forces colliding? And what are the different kinds of future scenarios we could face? So being a futurist, it's about how we come up with solutions for what's coming forward. Oh, it's so exciting. I love this. I mean, (laughs) yes. I always love to remind people, we talk about the future. I talked about change. Like it's one word. It's all one thing. It's no, it's so rich and complex and messy. Same thing. And I always like to say there is no one future. Like the future is a figment of our imagination because by the time the future exists, it's the present. And so at any given moment in time, we should never be trying to quote unquote predict the future. What we're trying to do is prepare for many different possible futures, plural. And so as a futurist, a lot of what I do is called forecasting or scenario planning, scenario mapping. You're trying to map out what are the different future scenarios we could face as society, as your company, as your team. And that takes you into a really exciting space because, yes, you definitely get apocalyptic scenarios, dystopian scenarios, they're in the mix, but you also get 
scenarios that are beyond anything you could possibly dream of in a positive sense as well. And you start to uncover opportunities. Why didn't we see that? Why, why don't we lean into that, go where that energy is? And so for me, I love it. You know, you remind me of when you're going through something that's difficult or even something great that then becomes difficult, it feels really tough. It feels hard to deal with, hard to navigate. You can't really see your way through. But it's not until you get to the other side of it in the future and look back that you can go, oh, this is how I got here. If this hadn't happened and this hadn't happened, I never would be standing where I am right now. For better or for worse, we always have choice at each of these points to decide how we want to move. I want to talk about how you got here, right? How you got to this point of navigating your own uncertainty. And when we talked, I was touched by your story, by hearing your story and hearing you talk about your experience in your early 20s and then traveling the world and finding this love of language and culture and then using these lang this language and culture love to help us understand uncertainty. And can you talk about your story and, and how you got here? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. And what a beautiful way to tee it up. But my entry into a world in flux, my sort of baptism, if you will, happened when I was 20 and I was at university and I was studying overseas. I was halfway around the world and I got the phone call that no one ever really wants to get or frankly expects to get that both of my parents had died in a car crash. And I know I've just put a difficult topic into the conversation. I love talking about this stuff. That was the moment that my whole life, but more importantly, my future just flipped on its head right? Everything changed. My family changed. My sense of self changed. My notions about a career changed. 20 is a really interesting age because I was old enough to be able to take care of myself day to day, but young enough that I didn't really know how the world worked. I hadn't yet started my career in any meaningful way. And it just caused a bunch of pivots and a lot of inner soul searching and reflection for not just how am I going to survive, but how do I turn this very tragic situation into a way that I can actually serve humanity in ways I hadn't thought of before? I never would have imagined back then that I would write a book about this or that that would define so much of my professional life. This is a key part of my portfolio, which doesn't show up anywhere on my resume. And yet it defines so much of how I do what I do and why I see and why I pay attention and notice certain things that may fall off the radar for others. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And when we talked, I said, we don't have to go anywhere you don't want to go. And you were like, oh, oh no, no, we're, no, we're going here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've had lots of exposure and experience talking to people about this in different settings. And I know that it's very unsettling for some people. We have a very primal fear of death and talking about death is not typically something we, we do openly. I do so with a very whole heart. And it is bittersweet, for sure. I wouldn't wish this on anyone. And yet, the longer I live, and the more I'm able to use this as a point of human connection with others, the more sweet it becomes as opposed to the bitter. And so I just, I open this up, anyone who's listening, anyone who's just sort of taking all of this in, I'm an open book. I also totally get that everyone has a complicated relationship to these kinds of things, but we learn a lot from one another and sharing these parts of our stories for how we navigate and move forward. I agree. I wouldn't be in the job I'm in if not for personal moments in my portfolio that have nothing to do with work, but led me to say, oh, I, I have to do this. They were difficult. And it makes me think of, I know you and I both love positive psychology, this concept of positive psychology called post-traumatic growth, which is the idea that it doesn't have to be only that we experience post-traumatic stress or challenges after trauma, but that we can actually grow after trauma and become stronger. And it's part of what Tal Ben-Shahar, who's a happiness expert, calls resilience 2.0, which 
which is we can grow, but actually we just have to know about it. And if we know that post-traumatic growth exists, we're actually two times more likely to experience post-traumatic growth. And when I learned that, I went, oh my God, this is the stuff that humans need to know, that life is going to get hard and that it's going to be great again. It's going to get hard again. It's really about how you use the material of your life to create the richness and the goodness that, that you can create. I want to come back to the culture piece because this one felt really interesting. So this tragic experience happens in your life, and then you go and travel. You live in many different places. You talk about many of the different experiences you have from being held up at gunpoint to meeting incredible people. All the things happen to you. <laughs> and you come back and you have this love of language and this love of how other cultures see the world and even see life in a way that can be meaningful for us. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and maybe even share one of your favorite, as we'll get into in a bit, but one of your favorite terms when it comes to how we move forward in a world that's uncertain? Yeah, and let me give a little bit of context. It'll sort of weave together the story of my parents and what I ended up doing later with the travel. My dad was absolutely my best friend. He was a cultural geographer. And so I grew up in a household. Both of my parents were educators. So it wasn't ever about material possessions. It was about learning and an appreciation of diversity and a you know, cultural geographer. What is that? He studied the migratory patterns of people and plants and animals and, and how we started to like cross-pollinate, if you will, on all these different senses. So I, I just bring this up because I was raised in a household in which one of the most basic values and tenets was everyone has something to contribute to the conversation. So I share this because I was raised in a household that we didn't have a lot of money, so it wasn't like we're going to go pay for family trips to France or Japan or no, but it was like a clear message of the world is a big place. Anytime you have an opportunity to go explore it, we will support you a thousand percent. We won't pay for you to do it, but we will not get in your way. There's so much need and opportunity in the world to serve others, like go out there. And, you know, my parents were always like, we're not going to tell you what you have to do. I wasn't from a family along those lines. They said, the one thing you can never do is think that your career is about you, especially because you're a girl and you've had a chance to get an education. Again, this is decades ago. That makes you one of the luckiest kids on the planet. And because you've been so lucky, you've had this gift, you have a duty and a responsibility to give back and you give back through service. So they said, you can do whatever you want. There are lots of ways you can serve. Doctors serve, teachers serve, environmentalists serve, social workers, serve. like we serve, they said, but that is the one thing you have to do to actually make a contribution as a, a citizen and a fellow human being. So I share this because that's the world, that was my upbringing. Then they die right at this moment that I'm just starting to map out what my career might look like. So you might imagine how that had this impact on like, whoa, you lose them. So on the one hand, I didn't have parental accountability. Mm -hmm. Some benefits to that. No one could say no. On the flip side, of course, I had to take 100% responsibility for my life. I had to be self-sufficient. I had to, you know, pay bills. I had to figure out taxes and dentist appointments and, like, everything that felt overwhelming at the time. But I also realized, again, it, it maps onto that, like, if I were to die tomorrow, because losing my parents so unexpectedly and so quickly gave me a very real sense of my own finite finitude and my, my own mortality. And so I was asking this question. And... Growing up, we didn't have a lot, but I was allowed to spend money on two things. Those two things were education and travel. That was it. And so I was like, okay, trying to figure out where am I going to go with all of this. And long story short, I was supposed to go to grad school after I graduated from college. And I was in, deep in the midst of 
grief and loss and not knowing which way was up, trying to get a handle on what I was supposed to do. And I kept coming back to, okay, education and travel, education and travel. And instead of, and this will resonate perhaps with some folks from yesterday, my professors and mentors were mostly saying, you know, graduate from college, go to work at a consulting firm, go to work at an investment bank. Like, this is what your credential to start doing. And I was sitting there, and, and I say this very respectfully to investment banks and consulting firms, but I was like, I might die tomorrow. I don't think the world needs me as another investment banker. Like, the world needs help. And so what I managed to do, and again, gratitude, fortuity, serendipity, I got a job. Speaking of portfolio career, I was a hiking and biking guide around the world. And that was my job between college and grad school. And four years, I didn't have a permanent address. I had a backpack. And seven months of the year, I would guide full time. And it gave me not enough income to raise a family or pay a mortgage, but enough income to travel the rest of the year. And so back to the question, my sole goal was how can I see and learn and experience how as much of the rest of the world lives so that I can figure out how best to serve. And so that meant that the vast majority of my time outside of guiding was spent in frontier markets, emerging markets, developing countries. I got into lots of trouble, like getting held up at gunpoint in Bolivia and getting stuck on a boat that I did not realize at the time was packed full of drugs in Cambodia. And, oh, I had things that... You got stories. If my parents were alive, they'd be like, what? But there I was. And I know this is a slightly longer answer, but I want to weave this together because... I had those experiences, and I will say, people gave me such flack. They're like, you're doing what? Your career is going to crash and burn. How can we put this into a resume? You know, all of that. And I was sitting there going like, I have a longer-term, bigger-picture plan for this. It's going to take time to get there, but I'm not a dilettante. I'm not I, I really want to work hard, but I want a bigger picture. What is the world that I'm trying to serve? And during that time, it became very clear to me that I was interested in public policy. I was very interested in both the role of the law. I was also interested in global development. And so I did go on to grad school and I did my law degree and my finance degree, but I was focused on the base of the economic pyramid. I was focused on the economically active poor and what that means for business creation, livelihood creation, all of that. So I bring this up because it kind of brings us full circle. You start seeing, oh, portfolio, like to this day, my job as a hiking and biking guide, it was the best quote-unquote job I ever had. The skills it taught me, MBA never taught me. It taught me social diplomacy. It taught me to see differently. It taught me how to manage difficult personalities. And yet it was the kind of job that latter employers would have wrote it off. Right. At the same time, it took me being responsible to say, this was the best job I ever had, but it wasn't the career of impact that I wanted. So I had to learn to leave and start fleshing out a different part of my portfolio. Okay, so here's my question. There's a lot that's meaningful, but these two pieces that stick out to me. Number one is making a choice to leave a path that you were supposed to go on, which I think is really important. I think a lot of times when you hear stories where people have left the beaten path, there's some sort of safety net. And as we get older, we have more responsibilities. It feels like there's less and less of a possibility of safety net as accountability and responsibility become more part of our lives. We have bills to pay, we have children, we have families, we have all of these things. So number one is I would love for you to talk about the choice to leave the path you were supposed to be on and what that was actually like in the moment. And then number two, for those who are sitting here thinking, there's something I'm curious about or interested in, but I can't leave and go travel the world and do all these things for years. What would you recommend they do in thinking about how they want to contribute to the world? Oh, this is such a wonderful question. Okay, so I really want to bring this out that on the one hand, I didn't have a backstop. I mean, my parents were teachers. 
they raised us with really good values and, you know, they hadn't taken on a bunch of debt. Like, they could have left me in a real pickle, in a real sticky point. But I had to find a way forward. At the same time, I did have people around me who cared. We think about safety nets and we often think about them in a financial sense. I cannot underscore enough the importance of emotional safety nets. And you look at kids who grow up and you look at just how many different forms of privilege there are. And children who are raised in households, this is my own bias, but based on quite a bit of observation, financial privilege, but lack of emotional support and well-being have a much harder time later in life than those who come from a scrappy, even poor families, poor backgrounds, economically, financially, underserved backgrounds, but have come from a family of love and knowing who they are and, and who, who they can turn to when things get rough. So I had to figure out how to make things work, but I also very much realized that I had no responsibilities at this time. And so that was a blessing in that I could be as scrappy as I wanted to be. I will not downplay. It was racked by anxiety and worry and guilt and guilt about like, would my parents be proud? And, and just worry about, will this all work out? I had no idea what my life was gonna look like 10 years hence. I just knew what the next best thing for me to do was. And then one thing led to another and literally and figuratively, you, you put one foot in front of the other, you start walking that path. And then you realize we're all blazing our own trail. And you start realizing the path is not really in front of any of us. We are walking it. And it's only when you look back that you look at that, the path that I have forged for myself. So the choice was one of the most beautiful things when I think about the degree to which it nudged me, encouraged me, sort of forced me to get clear on what my values and priorities are. And it wasn't that it had to work out perfectly. It was that if I was going to die the next day, that I would have lived a life that made sense and that I had done my best to live the values and priorities that I believe matter. So it's interesting, back to the positive psychology, this notion that post-traumatic growth can happen is amazing. I love it. Implicit in it, it requires that you do the work. Knowing that there's growth is like this wonderful, like, it's like the carrot. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel. You have to be able to get through that tunnel. And so for me, a lot of travel in particular connected me to humans in so many ways where you realize I've got my grief but everyone has their grief. I've got my challenges, but everyone has their challenges. And when you start to understand other people's challenges, yours start to become part of a much bigger narrative than just you. And it stops being my anxiety. It starts being, how can I help others with theirs? And in the process, I start to see mine in a different light. Yeah, there's a really beautiful sense of common humanity that can change mm -hmm. so much. It's okay. like many of the challenging experiences we have can feel isolating. And in that isolation, we decide to like hide them or keep them separate from other people. Or at least that's what I've done. And it's like, oh, when you share, all of a sudden you realize that everybody else is just like you. As a friend used to say, you're not that unique. <laughs> and I would yeah. always go, oh, God, but you're probably right. And your skills and your gifts and your experience, no one can be a better you than you. Yes. No one else ever has had or ever will have your set of life experiences. So you are unique. But to think that your feelings, particularly feelings of grief, of guilt, of shame, no, those are universal that mm -hmm. tie us together. And the great experiences you've had, and but especially the challenges you've had, that's what really forms and chisels your character. We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with futurist and uncertainty expert, April Rennie. 
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with April Rennie. I think we have a couple questions oh, here. Good. So the first question I see is from Josie. It's how did you know what the next right step was for you? Mm. And how did you take that courageous next step, even with all the uncertainty? And I think this, and this is to, the second yeah. question yes. as well. It's a great question. And this is not a silver bullet kind of like, here's what to do. Here's your checklist. It takes practice. It's not like all of a sudden we can improve our tolerance for uncertainty overnight, but it is something we can practice every day. And I think for everyone it's different. And I think it's even more relevant today in this fast-paced world in which everything's 24-7 and respond to messages. And it's very hard to just go quiet, to just go quiet and go within. But where did I find the next thing to do was a lot of introspection. But I say that not just like looking in and voila, there it is. Writing in my journal, talking to mentors, like really taking it all in, but listening to my heart listening to my soul, and it had to be aligned with my head. I actually believe that many of us, we have a lot of the answers within. They're just buried under 10 layers. And so when I went quiet, it was like, oh, I can sort of sense what I'm supposed to do. And I can say, you have signals that take you where you want to go, and you also have signals telling you don't go there. And I can tell you that I was supposed to go do my PhD. My parents would have been thrilled, all of that. I was accepted into a PhD program, whole other life path that I could have followed. I started having panic attacks. They were one of the scariest things I did because again, I've got grief and loss and now I have panic attacks. And it was a very clear signal. I am not supposed to do this. And it was scary. The rest of my relatives were like worried about my own well-being and my future. And here I was saying like, I need to just, I got to hit the pause button because I knew. And so that required it kind of relates to the bigger question of like, how did you take that next step? I knew there are a set of questions that I often ask myself, and it's around what will you regret? So in this particular case, will I regret not going and getting my PhD? Maybe. Will I regret showing up as someone who's not actually ready for this program and 
will I regret doing something? Will I regret not doing it? And there's always this sense of you ask that second question and you're like, there's just no way that that's going to be a good outcome. Usually, I should say it, it's the flip of like, will I regret doing something? Maybe. I'll figure that out. Will I regret not doing it? Absolutely. So I have to try. And that came up again and again and again. And it doesn't mean that you're guaranteed of success. It does mean that you've given life your best shot. And so that's a piece going inside, asking myself these questions about at the end of the day, on your deathbed, not to sound morbid, but like, what will I regret? Will I regret having done something and failed or will I regret never having tried? And then it became clear as day. But that leads us into the second question, which is like, how did I take that next step? Because I didn't have a backstop. I had people who loved me. I knew that I could make phone calls to people, but like my childhood home was gone. My parents were gone. And so I always will say there's a difference between making a rash, foolish decision of like, I'm just going to go do it because I've oftentimes people like they're fed up with their jobs. So I'm just going to go do this kind of on a whim. And I'm always like, don't do that. The same time that allows you to go in and be introspective should also be used to responsibly plan and prepare for what this could look like. That's so meaningful to pause there because... Yeah. For a while, especially as a millennial, as I was in my mid, late 20s, early 30s, it seemed really attractive. You know, people were making it attractive to just go do the thing, just take the leap, just run away. What I've learned through experience is that would not have worked out for me, very likely. And, and it was actually the right choice for me to not just take a crazy mm -hmm. leap, but to actually make short and sometimes lateral steps um, to then go forward. And so, you know, I always ask people when I'm working with them and I do coaching and talk about careers, like, what are you optimizing for in this moment? And I still remember, this is at an extreme, but after my parents died in the immediate aftermath, I mean, I was dealt with the like, I just want to pull the covers over my head and not even get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, I have a choice. Every day I would wake up and I have a choice. Either this can change my life very much for the worse and send me in a kind of a downward spiral, or I can make the choice. I remember my goal some days, get out of bed and put one foot in front of the other. That was what I wanted to achieve. And then you realize you put one foot in front of the other and then things start showing up as you're walking and then people start showing up. And But it was literally that simple. Now, for example, the piece about travel, I did not in my first attempt go travel for four years. No, no. I had been trained from an early age. I'd always been a traveler. I loved designing trips. I would experiment. I would try to craft itineraries even for trips I didn't take. Like, I would research. Like, you do all of these things, none of which are the actual travel. That was a step towards my goal, even though it didn't put me on a plane. But it filled a part of my soul, and it prepared me for when I was in that position that I could go do that thing. There are all kinds of ways that go into the planning and the preparing. Um, it's like you rehearsed the experience. Mm -hmm. So when mm -hmm. you get there, you're in uncertainty. There are all these things that are happening. And then you come back and you've started to create, you sent me your lexicon, yeah. right? So let's tell me about what's that. in there. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I spent these years not just traveling, but then later, even when I was traveling, I was working, I was guiding, but then I spent almost 15 years in global development. So really working in emerging markets. This is early in my career, part of my futurist training. But as part of the travels and part of the work and part of the exposure to all these different cultures, I realized, and it's one of my favorite things I mentioned to, to study even today, but for the last 30 years, I've been amazed by and inspired by the collective human wisdom we have when it comes to navigating change in the unknown. And so every culture has a word, a concept, a ritual, a tradition, a, a phrase, something that other cultures don't that help you like 
this is just a helpful way of seeing the world. I wish we had this word in English, or I wish I could see it that way. And so my fluxicon, so flux lexicon, the language of change, is this little collection. It's the starting collection of words, phrases, concepts, all sorts of things from around the world that help us all navigate change. The cultural anthropology and all of that. But what you find is every single society throughout history has struggled with change and has developed ways of navigating it. So we are sitting on so much wisdom, but the vast majority, I would say all, all humans to some degree, when we're dealt with a given change, we react based on our own cultural silo, based on what we know. Makes sense. That's how we're programmed as humans. But we fail to realize that there are so many other ways of seeing this. And so one of the things I love to do is kind of cross-pollinate and say, did you know? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, oh, that problem is solved, but it widens your perspective. It gives you a different lens through which to see the change and uncertainty you're experiencing. It's a really helpful place to start. And it's the concept of the bardo. So this exists in Tibet, parts of India. The bardo is this space. It's often depicted as a cave. It's a liminal space where transition thrives. And historically, it's been the liminal space between the living and the dead, or that period of time, what world do you inhabit when you die? Sure. But not just your physical death. When you transition from childhood to adolescence, adolescence to adulthood, adulthood to midlife, all of those periods, those transitions are celebrated. And what I want to underscore is like, The concept of the bardo in a lot of Western culture, that was scary. Basically, I'm in limbo. How do I feel? And for a lot of people, being in limbo is anxiety-wracking. It's just nerve-wracking, anxiety-producing. In the traditions in which the bardo exists, it's actually considered one of the highest forms of humanity. It's a state of being that people strive to get to. Wow. And I think that alone is like... What if I tried on those glasses? Correct. You know, yeah. What if I adjusted my prescription and just looked through those glasses for a little bit? Yeah. It changes. And we can think of it in a physical sense. You can think of it in an emotional sense. You can think of it as your career progresses. Like, you can be in a career bardo, frankly. Sure. And yeah. celebrate the heck out of it because that is where people aspire to get to as opposed to like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I love the bardo. It's like this 101 concept, like very basic that it makes you rethink that liminality and the in-between and the not knowing and the neither here nor there isn't a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Frankly, it's where we spend more of our life than we'd like to acknowledge. And if we could get around that, we would realize we actually are spending much more of our time in a space that's rich, that's to be cherished, that's like awesome, not something to beat yourself up about. I love that, too, because I think most of us avoid it. And I recall some work that was done by someone named Bruce Feiler where he interviewed yes. people about life transitions. And he said that they happen every five years and he calls them life quakes. So we actually do spend more of our lives yeah. than we'd like to admit in these transitional spaces where you said the cave. I was thinking of like being in space and like you have nothing you can touch. There's nothing below you or above you. But at some point, gravity catches your ankle and you're brought down and you get back to where we think we want to be. But the idea that we want to celebrate this space in the cave, this time in limbo, is what is really powerful to me from a reframing perspective. Yeah. And if you look at Tibetan culture, there will be an anticipatory preparatory phase. You celebrate the fact that another bardo might be coming. It's like a muscle you groove and you make it stronger so that not only does it help you get through the here and now, it prepares you better for the future. It's not 
before and after per se. The expectation is never that you stay in the bardo and are like floating and not knowing forever. The point is it's a transition if it's an honor. The part that you don't know is like the apex of the experience. Right. And so you think about like, oh, every time I go into the bardo, if I'm gonna have these life quakes every five years, each time I could get a little more savvy about this, a little less anxiety going in and a little better at reading the tea leaves and a little better at floating in that liminality. Mm-hmm. And knowing that it will go. Uh Yeah. When you think about the work that you're doing today, we started with the intention behind your work. What do you hope that people walk away with today? Mm. One is to see differently. See yourself differently. See others differently. See our future a little differently. And when I say differently, I really mean with a bit more empathy, gentleness towards yourself and others, and to recognize our interdependence in this. And related to that, I hope that everyone can go away feeling a little bit calmer and less anxious about the unknown. Because when you can do that, not only does it allow you to breathe a little more easily, but what we start to realize is when you're fearful and anxious all the time, it actually saps your energy that you could otherwise be investing in a lot of powerful good. And so that it allows all of us to breathe a little more easily and then realize I've got energy now. I want to go do these great things for myself, for others. I want to try this little thing. And I would say that's the last piece is like, based on this conversation, if I have a funny feeling that most people listening, there's something in your personal or professional life that you've wanted to test out. Just give it a try in a small dose, but lean into that person you already are. I love the idea of becoming, but I also want to honor who you already are, you've got the seed within you, pour some water on that seed into the person that your inner being is ready to let flourish. April, I could talk to you forever, obviously. Okay, I'm going to have us wrap with your three statements. Better humans are? Fluxy. Fluxy. (laughs) Love (laughs) it. Done. We're trademarking. I can't resist. (laughs) Better work is? Part of a portfolio. Resonates. And a better world has? Peace. Love that. April, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone for joining us at Talent Connect today, live to listen to April. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, everybody. That was April Rennie, futurist, author, and random handstander. You can find her writing and sharing her work on LinkedIn. And I hope you'll find her here in the studio again soon. We loved having her. One big thing before we go. It seems when we think about uncertainty, we spin it as a negative. And while sometimes it does bring experiences we don't find pleasurable, think about how many other times uncertainty has led to your joy, growth, or transformation. The best moments in my work and my personal life have come when I got out of my own way and let go of the illusion of control. Instead, I decided to have some faith in myself, other people, and what was possible. If this conversation resonated with you, share it with the first person who comes to mind. You never know how it could help them out. And support other people like you in finding our show by leaving us a rating before you go. While you're at it, write a one-sentence review telling me and our team what you love about Everyday Better. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and living every day with more intention and clarity. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Our associate producer is Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gadron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. 
Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn original audio and video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.